Turn with me in your copies of God's Word back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32. We'll commence our reading there at verse 24. That's Genesis 32 and starting at verse 20, 24. Hear once again the word of our God. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. As he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted on his, upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. Wrestling with God. It's a phrase that we all know. It's a phrase that has become quite commonplace in evangelical circles. And it's a phrase that I think often we use to describe prayer predominantly. Uh, In fact, usually that phrase comes up when somebody is describing an earnest act of prayer. Uh, They're wrestling with God for something or against something. And beloved, as you look at this text, of course, this being the text where that phrase is is derived, you'll see that that usage of the phrase... This idea of wrestling with God is only referring to my activity, to my praying and to my earnestness, is alien to the text. Who initiates the wrestling in Genesis 32? But God. God is the one who accosts Jacob, as it were. God becomes the combatant. And and so, so much of Genesis 32 tells us that, that to wrestle with God really is a phrase that tells us more about the activity of God, more about the work of God and His peculiar dealings with His people than it does about their own earnestness, about their own zeal. And Beloved, I'd say to you this evening that this is one of the great reasons why Genesis 32 holds out so many correctives to us today. Remembering that wrestling with God begins on God's side reminds us, beloved, that our spirituality is not one-sided. 
To be in communion with God is to be in communion with an active God. A personal God who really does, at times like we see in Genesis 32, deal with his people in ways that are personal, in ways that are sometimes perplexing. That he is the one who wrestles with his own. Beloved, if we keep that in front of us, then understanding how this combat comes to its close will help us. You'll notice that our text this evening, Genesis 32, verses 26, and sorry, verses 25 and 26, hold out to us the conclusion of the match. Verse 25 begins, When he saw that he prevailed not against him, that is, when the Lord saw that he prevailed not against Jacob, well, beloved, I suppose we have to stop there, don't we? When the Lord saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. It's a striking phrase, isn't it? I mean, this is a text that should take us aback just at this point. This is the Lord God omnipotent. This is the God who holds all things in his own power, in his own hand. And the text says that our omnipotent, almighty God here is not overcoming Jacob. And it's more than that. In the text it tells us here that, J- that he saw that he prevailed not against Jacob. Our omniscient God now is described to us as one who, as it were, learns something. He sees, as though he didn't see before, that he wasn't prevailing against the patriarch. This is obviously accommodated language. This is, this is telling us, of course, this is showing to us, rather, how God is coming down to man in a way to help us understand something. Obviously, our God remains omnipotent. Obviously, our God is omniscient. But in this text, we are being tutored. And we're being tutored in such a way as to help us along. But I would remind you that this is a theophany. God is manifesting himself to the patriarch in a unique way. It's not just that this is a way of describing to us, who would read it thousands of years later, what's going on, but it's really telling us how God behaved, how the Lord acted as the patriarch wrestled with him. In this moment, the Lord acted as one who could not, be, who could not overcome the patriarch. He acted as one who could not prevail over Jacob. Now, as we continue in the text, you'll notice this. At that moment, he touched the hollow of his thigh. Now, the word touched there is the same word elsewhere translated to strike. It's the word stricken in Isaiah 53.4. It's the idea that you have in Job 19 when there the man says, The hand of God hath touched me. Job is saying, The Lord has dealt harshly with me. He has touched me hard, even violently. That's the idea. The Lord has touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, that is the Lord, let me go for the day breaketh. Now at this juncture, it's important to note how the Lord is reiterating what, he just, what, he, what we've just observed. The Lord is carrying himself as one who cannot, be, who, who cannot overcome the patriarch. And so now the Lord, the Lord comes to Jacob with the request, let me go. 
As you move then to Jacob's response, Jacob simply says, and he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. The cry of a wounded Jacob. Now, beloved, we know this text. We know this text fairly well. But I think it's helpful for us to remember that there are a number of paradoxes here. Note just for a moment how the Lord behaves. The Lord wounds Jacob. The Lord demonstrates in this moment that of course he remains the Lord God omnipotent. Of course he he holds all power in his hand and none can overcome him. He is the one who wounds Jacob. Nevertheless, in this text, the Lord acts as the one conquered. He is the one that requests Jacob to let him go. He is the one in verse 25 who is described as seeing that he cannot prevail over Jacob. But then come to Jacob. You have another paradox. Jacob is the one who's wounded. Jacob is the one who has wrestled. He's wrestled all the night long. And at this juncture, he finds himself wounded in such a way he'll remain wounded for the rest of his life. And yet in his response to the Lord, he acts like the victor. The rules very much seem interchanged. Now, in order to understand and really unravel this tension, I think we need to ask perhaps one of the most looming questions in the whole text. And that is, when did Jacob know his assailant? To understand the behavior, how the Lord is dealing with his patriarch, and and how the patriarch is dealing with God, the question obviously is, When did Jacob know that he was wrestling with the Lord? When did he know? In the text, we do have a hint, and the hint comes to us in verse 26. You'll notice here that in this combat, as it comes to its close, the patriarch goes to God at this moment, and he doesn't ask, he doesn't ask for the man simply to leave him be. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? He's not content just to leave his assailant Free. Allow him to go and allow Jacob to return to his caravan. That's not at all what takes place here. Jacob holds on to the one who has, first of all, out of the dark, emerged as his assailant. He holds on to him. But there's even more than that. You'll notice here that Jacob not only holds on to him, but he asks that the man give a blessing. Well, but it's at this point that most commentators remind us that our patriarch, of course, knows the source of all true blessing. Even an Isaac, even an Abraham can give blessing, but their blessing is only really that that comes from God, first of all. And when Jacob here is crying for a blessing, we're supposed to know that Jacob here is calling upon the one from whom all blessings come. Jacob knows the one whom he deals with in this text is the Lord God. I want you to notice, though, that even if we take what we have in Hosea 12, that text that we read just previously, where this idea is further reinforced, there the prophet says, by his strength, that is by Jacob's strength, he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. Now, 
the prophet there is very clear. The patriarch is self-conscious. He is not supplicating an angel only. He is not supplicating even a man who's assailed him in the dark. Here the prophet says, and he says it in that self-same verse, that he goes before the God of Bethel. Jacob knows at this point, as he makes supplications, the one whom he directs his prayer towards. He knows in this moment, here the moment of our text, he knows that the one whom he wrestles with is God. Now, you might say, well, what about verse 29? Where Jacob asks, of course, well, what about your name? I want you to notice, first of all, the Lord treats this as though this is not a question as if Jacob were ignorant who he was. You'll notice the Lord's reply, why do you ask? The Lord knows that Jacob knows his identity. So so what do we make of the question? Not to get ahead of ourselves. The idea behind that is, is the same idea that you have in Moses when he's asking, of course, for the Lord to show him his countenance. Or, or you, the same thing you have in Manoah, whenever Manoah actually asks in the book of Judges, what is your name? And the Lord responds there, it is a secret thing. It's not that Jacob doesn't know God, but he's looking for something more. He's looking for greater knowledge. Now, beloved, if it's the case then, If it's the case that Jacob knows that he's dealing with God at this moment in our text, really, that raises a whole host of questions, doesn't it? How are we supposed to understand Jacob's prevailing? And then, of course, secondly, what are we to make of Jacob's refusal in verse 26? If he knows that this is the Lord Jehovah, whom he is wrestling What do we make of these two ideas? I want you to notice, to answer the first question, how should we understand Jacob's prevailing? Because that's precisely what the text says, doesn't it? The Lord saw that he could not prevail against him. Well, we understand that Jacob prevailed only by permission. And we get that from the text itself, don't we? Jacob is wounded by the Lord demonstrating that the Lord always had the power, always had the strength to overcome the patriarch. If Jacob prevails, it's only by permission that he does so. But I also want you to notice that that's not sufficient. Not sufficient an answer if we keep in light, keep in mind what we have in Hosea 12. In there, the prophet tells us, by his strength, he had power with God. In some sense, In some sense, and we'll see this further, Jacob, by his strength, was prevailing in this moment. We'll understand that, hopefully, God willing, in the the next couple of moments. But to answer the second question, what do we make of Jacob's refusal? I want you to notice, beloved, if you look at this text and you absent, really, every, well, you remove, rather, all that you have before here, and the Lord absents himself at this moment, and Jacob allows him to go, What has Jacob received? Well, Jacob has received everything that he had prayed for already, at least in token. There God would be saying to him that you have prevailed. That which you've requested of me, you have received. But that's not how Jacob leaves the fight. There's more to this. Jacob holds on to the Lord in spite of what the Lord himself calls him to do. 
In spite, in spite of the express command, let me go, Jacob holds on. What do we make of that? Well, beloved, what we should see here is that like his providences, Jacob sees that his words are only seemingly contrary to God's promise. Only seemingly at odds. And so Jacob goes back to the Lord, holding on to him, pleading the promise that he knows God will indeed fulfill. Even if for a time, God seems to act otherwise. Now, beloved, if that is our text this evening, what are we to take from it? Well, first of all, in Hosea 12, it's this wrestling with God that the prophet brings to the fore of our attention as an example to be followed. We'll see that, God willing, in a few moments. But the idea is is that there is something exemplary in this moment. And what is the example then? Beloved, what you see here is the Lord causing his people to prevail with him for greater blessing. The Lord causes his people to prevail with him for greater blessing. I want you to notice this under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the struggle, then the strength, and then finally the strain of the man's prayer. And see how all of these things sit before us, what really wrestling with God is. So take, first of all, the struggle itself. Again, the text tells us he touched the hollow of his thigh, that's Jacob's thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, beloved, everything that we've seen up to this point shows the patriarch in duress. We find the man, he's aged, of course. We find him sleepless. We find him under heavy concerns about what awaits him in the day to come. And in addition to that, our text tells us now Jacob is wounded. This is the patriarch as he wrestles with God. A man who seems to be afflicted at every turn. This is a struggle with the Lord in painful providences. But again, if you go back to Hosea 12, there's another dimension that the prophet brings to our attention there. You'll notice that there Hosea reminds us that as Jacob wrestled, he wept. He wept and made supplication unto him. I said to you um, before, I believe it was last midweek, that when we look at Genesis 32, we should understand there is much to Jacob's affliction that is not just physical. And certainly the prophet Hosea highlights that reality. Our, our patriarch here is a weeping man. He is not only struggling through all kinds of external afflictions. There is a deeper sorrow. You see here a man wrestling, and you see here a man weeping. And beloved, that tells us something about the struggle that involves wrestling with God. The Lord commands and enables his people's faith in hard providences. Whether that be external only or external and spiritual. Beloved, that means then that wrestling with God is not just looking to God to fulfill promises that seem to be delayed. 
In this case, what you have is hard providences in which God appears to be the enemy of his people. We spent considerable time last midweek on that very theme. That, beloved, is what you have in our text. It's not just that the Lord has delayed to act. It's not just that the Lord is acting in a way that perhaps we might not have expected. But that the Lord is actually acting very contrary to what seems to be his own promise. But I want you to notice, beloved, that part of this wrestling involves a consciousness on the part of the people of God. The Lord here plays the enemy, and Job saw that himself. Job writes, he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. The psalmist, Psalm 102, thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. The sense of the text is thou hast lifted me up in order to cast me down. Again, the psalmist, Psalm 10 that we sang, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thy face in times of trouble? The Lord seems to be one standing aloof, acting contrary to what I would have expected. Well, that's the kind of thing you have in our text this evening. The Lord here is the one who wounds the patriarch. The Lord here, as Jacob knows it's God, The Lord here plays his combatant, his assailant. These are the hard providences through which men and women will wrestle with God. When God, in either providence or in his own spiritual dealings with them, seems to be quite contrary to them. A part of this theme, beloved, you recognize, is that aspect of calling. It's not just that these men and women are conscious that God is dealing with them, in in a way that almost seems like he's their enemy. But I want you to notice, beloved, there is a call to wrestle with the Lord. Again, this is something we've hinted at before. You'll notice here, there's the command in Isaiah 50. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay. Note what Isaiah says there. Here is a child of light, but he walks in darkness. A child of light that is one of God's own, but he walks in dolorous ways. He walks under great difficulty. He walks even in such a way as that the Lord seems to be his enemy. The darkness seems to have clouded all of the hope he might have had before. And yet the command is, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Notwithstanding God's dealings with him, because that's precisely what the prophet has in mind. God is the one who is causing his child to walk in this way. Nevertheless, the command is, let him stay upon his God. Take it negatively. The command to to wrestle with God in this way comes to us from Psalm 77. After you remember the psalmist goes through a litany of questions, has the Lord become my enemy indeed? The psalmist comes to the conclusion, perhaps wrath has replaced mercy. But you notice how the psalmist brings himself back. He says that kind of thinking, 
He says this, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Negatively, what the psalmist is saying here is, if I give myself over to those kinds of thoughts, it is infirmity. Meaning then, positively, he is not to do that. He is to resist that at all costs, not to give himself over to those desperate thoughts. And beloved, we can go even further, and I think we ought to. You might say, well, should one wrestle with God when God appears to be afflicting them, even even coming with all kinds of hard providences, internal and external, and doing so because of sin? Should, should the Christian wrestle with God even then? I just direct your attention to Psalm 30. This is the psalmist's boast. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. This is his chastening. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. And this is the man's response. I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. The pride, of course, induced the chastening. But here in God's word we have an example. Notwithstanding the chastening hand of God. He is to go to the very one who holds the rod. To make supplication to him there. Conscience. When it's inflamed, what is he to do? Lord, from the depths to the eye cried. My voice, Lord, do thou hear. Psalm 130. But beloved, you remember how that psalm continues. The man longs, of course, for the Lord more than the watchman for the light of the morning. And beloved, what do you find? I wait for God. My soul doth wait. My hope is in his word. He continues. He continues through the struggle. And then, beloved, take what you have in the Syrophoenician woman. Even the clearest, what seems to be the clearest rebukes and rebuttals from Christ, she continues nonetheless. She continues to deal with her God and with the expectation of mercy. We could go on. Psalm 20, the psalmist reminds us that the Lord is the one who sends affliction, and yet the obligation is to cry out for him in the day of trouble. This is expressed by James. When thou art afflicted, pray. Psalm 50, verse 10, call upon me in the day of trouble. To wrestle with God, in a sense, in the sense that we are taking it in this text, is an obligation. When God, even when God appears to be acting contrary to his people, their obligation is to lay hold of him, to struggle. You see, beloved, there is a very simple illustration. They all break down at some point. But the idea behind all of this is the people of God, as they are under the rod in this way, as they see God acting in the way that he is or dealing with them in the way that he is. The Lord expects them to remember his love even through the darkness, even through the affliction. Like a father might expect his child to remember his love when he's absent or whenever he's disciplining the child. The Lord expects his people to wrestle, knowing that he remains their God. 
Now, beloved, if that's the case, then the application, first of all, is that if, if that's the case, and sense is the only thing, if your sense of affliction is the only thing that is keeping you from the promise, beloved, the obligation, even in the text that I've just cited, is to cling to the promise all the more. If it's just the sense that the Lord, if it's just the sense that the Lord has become your enemy, then Christian, the obligation is to wrestle. That brings us to our second point. That is the strength that we see here in this text. The text reads, he saw that he prevailed not against him. That is Jacob there. And then again in Hosea 12, by his strength, as Jacob's strength, he had power with God. Now, the text in both cases indicate that Jacob prevailed in strength. And that raises all kinds of questions. Why would the prophet say that Jacob prevailed in his strength? Well, beloved, whatever the prophet means there, it cannot be contrary either to omnipotence or to the glory of our God. So what do we mean? The strength that really allowed Jacob to prevail. Well, that you and I are supposed to see here is a derived, it is a provided strength. It's exercised by Jacob, but it is a strength that has been given to the patriarch. It's nothing from himself. Exercised by him, yes, but not of his making. And you see, beloved, there then, that's how we are to understand this kind of overcoming. The overcoming here is not by Jacob's strength, as it were, of his own making. It is an overcoming that comes through the enabling of God. So what do we make make of this? You see, in this text you find that the Lord causes his people to prevail by his supply of grace. We see that, first of all, in the provision. There, the, If you look just at Psalm 138, you'll see exactly the same thing in our text. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me, the psalmist says, and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. The idea there is that the man is under great duress, and yet he is crying out to God, and in crying out to God, the Lord has strengthened him in his soul. That shows us, doesn't it, where the strength of soul comes from. It comes only from the Lord God. Without this enabling grace, the people of God have no strength. Jacob has no strength. And so if there is any strength, if there is any prevailing, as we understand it in this text, it must only come from the Lord. And beloved, take that, of course, even in light of a text that we all know so very well. Romans 8, of course, There the text tells us, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. But do you remember what there the apostle cites? All kinds of hard providences. And beloved, we shouldn't read that list as though it were only externals. All of these things, he says, were conquerors over them. But I want to remind you, who sent those providences? Who sent the providences, those hard providences, over which we are conquerors in Romans 8? It was the Lord himself. I don't think we read Romans 8 very deeply. The Lord is saying that by his grace, he makes us conquerors even over those providences that he himself sends. 
body and soul. It is he who enables, he who provides strength to his people. But what then do we make of the prevailing? If that's the provision, what of the prevailing? There are parallel texts that we should keep in mind that will help us understand how Jacob prevails here. Take Exodus 32.10. Moses there, the Lord tells Moses, let me alone, Moses. There, you remember, Moses is, is, of course, in supplication for Israel. He's pleading on Israel's behalf that God would be gracious still. And the Lord turns to him, very much like he does to the patriarch in our text, and he says, let me alone. As though he couldn't bear any more. But even more strikingly, you have this in the Song of Solomon. Christ, speaking to the bride, says thus, He says, turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. That's Song of Solomon 6 and verse 5. Beloved, you see see especially in that text how we're supposed to understand the overcoming. It's not because the bride had any strength in herself. All this overcoming really reveals to us is the overwhelming, the intense love that God has for his people. He is willing, deeply willing, as it were, to be overcome by his own. And that text, Durham puts it this way, it holds forth the intenseness of his love and the certainty of faith's prevailing, that, to speak with reverence and admiration, He is captivated, ravished, and held with it as one that is overcome because he wills to be so. Beloved, Jacob did not prevail on his own strength. Jacob prevailed because God would have him prevail. Jacob would prevail because the Lord God held him with such great love. Christian, The Lord is more easily overcome than than a father wrestling with his children. His love for them is so deep. His love for them, as Durham puts it here, is so intense that he is willingly overcome by his own as they wrestle with him. Thirdly and finally as we close, what then of the strain of Jacob's prayer? That's verse 26. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. I want you to notice here that the patriarch is importunate. Of course, the man continues to cling, and we wonder at that importunity, but, but you recognize that, of course, this importunity has really an expectation lying behind it. He expects that the Lord will do him good. Now, why does he have that expectation? In order to answer that question, you must go back to verses 9 to 12, where you find there Jacob is assured that he has an interest in God's covenant. He is certain that God will deal graciously with him. And that, beloved, is the basis of this prayer. This is why Jacob is so forthright, so importunate in his dealings here. And really, this is just showing to us how faith pleads a title to God's blessing. Beloved, note note what he's pleading for. 
He's not pleading for healing. He's just been wounded. But he's not asking for the Lord to undo what he's just done. Have you ever noticed that before? He could ask the Lord God Omnipotent for any number of things, but he doesn't ask for healing. No, he asks for a blessing. He's asking that the Lord God would fulfill what he had promised, that he would be his God, and all that that meant, that he would be his portion and his inheritance. As it is in Genesis 15, his exceeding great reward. Take me. Take all that I have. Wound me in every way, but leave me this promise, this blessing that you are mine. That, beloved, is the strain of faith. Take every good thing. Take all my health and my wealth. But leave me, Christ. Then you see, beloved, he asks, pleads, urges this because he knows. He knows of his interest in the covenant. The psalmist puts it this way, Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. It's the very self-same thing you have in our text. In Jacob's prayer, he reminds the Lord, The Lord which saidst unto me, In Psalm 119, the psalmist is doing exactly the same thing. Lord, you are the one who in your word have made these precious promises, and through the ministration of your spirit, you have caused me to hope in them. Fulfill then your word. It all is predicated upon a real assurance of one's interest, a genuine hope in the covenant and its promises. And so again, the psalmist in Psalm 130 I wait for God, my soul doth wait, my hope is in his word. This is the cry of one who knows that even under the Lord's hard dealings with them, even as the Lord seems to become their combatant, the Lord's people, from an assured interest in the covenant of grace, remain importunate, are enabled to plead, even to plead boldly that the Lord would continue to leave a blessing. Now, Christian, we do close with just one final thought. In Hosea 12, there the prophet makes use of this moment. And you remember how in verse 6 he concludes. In verse 6 he says, Therefore, In light of all that's gone before, he says, Therefore turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Beloved, Jacob has just been wounded. He's been wounded and all kinds of difficult providences have befallen him. But you see how the prophet interprets the patriarch's afflictions. In spite of all of that, in spite of every difficulty the man faces, this is an encouragement to wait on the Lord. Therefore, he says, turn thou to thy God. Therefore, wait on thy God continually. 
See, beloved, prophets helping us understand something about affliction and wrestling with God. When Jacob halted for the rest of his life, I don't think it was a bitterness to him. It was really a token of his paternal love. It was a reminder that by his grace, the Lord visited him, treated him as one who was overcome in his desire to be gracious to him. And yes, he's wounded. Oh, but beloved, I think genuinely the patriarch, as he limped along, as he saw even these scars, the difficult afflictions the Lord has brought in his life, when he saw these things as genuine markers of his standing with the Lord. And certainly that's how the prophet interprets the afflictions and the difficulties that we find in our text. These are incentives to take hold of the Lord because what awaits those who do so? Nothing less than God himself. Nothing less than blessing itself. Nothing less than the self-same God whom the psalmist says, there is none that he desires on earth besides him. May the Lord help us to wrestle with him. May the Lord enable us to lay hold of the promises with more faith and for his own namesake. May we become a people more and more like Christ through it all. Amen.